All right, we're going to open up this morning to Genesis 25. We're going to begin there in Genesis chapter 25. Last week we talked about uh, the life of Abraham, and we started with the covenant that God had made with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 and confirmed in Genesis chapter 15. And that covenant and the promises that God made through Abraham was really dependent on two major, or contained two major aspects. And that is an offspring and a land, a, a, a people and a place. Uh, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that through him a great nation would be established and God would uh, call them out as special and God would bring them into their own land and give them a land of their own. Well, we saw the challenges last week with that. The first challenge is that Abraham and his wife Sarah were both well in age. Sarah was barren. Uh, so things looked impossible, and we saw all the obstacles uh, to the promise last week, and we saw how Abraham and Sarah, through God's help, overcome all of those obstacles, and God gave Abraham a son, uh, Isaac, that was the son of promise, and we saw immediately uh, that God tested Abraham for the life of his son, Isaac, and we saw how Abraham passed the test, believing that even if his son died, that God would raise him from the dead. Uh, where we left off in chapter 24, uh, we know that there has to be more than just one promised son. There has to be a family. There has to be generations, a lineage. And so Abraham goes and sends his servant to find a wife uh, for Isaac. And then we come to, uh, of course, he finds Rebekah uh, for Isaac. And in chapter 25, we ended with the death of Abraham being buried along with his wife uh, in the land of promise. Now we come to the next major section, and that is discussing what um, verse 19 in Genesis chapter 25 calls the generations of Isaac. The generations of Isaac uh, will take us from uh, Genesis 25, 19, all the way through Genesis, uh, the end of chapter 36. And there you see on the beginning of our paper, you see the outline that we have there. Uh, this will kind of give you a sketch chapter by chapter of the um, life of Jacob uh, and his wanderings. For what, we were, what we're going to find here in the generations of Isaac is that the main story is about Jacob. Jacob. So you find here going through chapter 25, 26, uh, we're going to discuss some of that. We're not going to be able to hit every single point uh, this morning as you know we normally don't get the opportunity to do, but we will look here at this story of Isaac and his son Jacob. So we begin in Genesis chapter 25. Um, again, this begins a new section in our narrative. Uh, these are the generations, the descendants of Isaac, which begins not with one son, but begins with two sons, Jacob and Esau. Um, Rebecca, so that should be Rebecca, similar to Sarah, was barren and had trouble conceiving. Uh, but Isaac prays and she becomes pregnant with twins. Now you would think, oh, what a blessing, twins. Nothing could go wrong there. Uh, but we find a lot goes wrong uh, here between Jacob and Esau. So although um, Isaac is the son of the covenant, he soon fades uh, as the leading character uh, and his sons, and specifically his son Jacob, take center stage in the story. And of course, the beginnings of Jacob and Esau 
also will reflect the future descendants of Jacob and Esau, which would become Israel, and Esau's descendants would become Edom. And there would be, Edom would be the sometimes contentious neighbor of Israel. But, you know, these, these stories are put here for a reason. Uh, and we see these played out in the larger context of Israel's history. Uh, with the story of Jacob, we reach the heart of Genesis. These chapters tell the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau, their subsequent estrangement, Jacob's flight, um, and then his marriage to Rachel and Leah, the birth of his 12 sons, and the return to the promised land of Canaan. So as, we're gonna, as we saw with Abraham, what we're going to see with Jacob is he goes on his own journey, uh, which we're going to look at in a few moments. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which makes him the father of the nation and his sons, the ancestors of Israel and these 12 tribes. One thing we see immediately here in the story of Jacob and Esau is this theme that's kind of played out not just in Genesis, but throughout the Old Testament as well. And this is the theme of the younger that is preferred over the older. Uh, running throughout Genesis and the entire Old Testament is the theme of God preferring the younger brother to the elder allowing the younger to leapfrog over the older and receive his honor. We can see this in Cain's story. Um, we see Cain born first, then Abel, but yet Cain's offering and was preferred, or Abel's offering was preferred over Cain's offering. When Abel dies, Cain's other younger brother, Seth, takes the place of first importance. We can see this when God chooses Isaac over Ishmael. Remember last week, even though Ishmael was a legitimate son of Abraham, he was not the promised son. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Uh, we see it a little bit later in Genesis in the story of Joseph, how he was the preferred over all of his brothers. Um, and then elsewhere in pivotal moments of the Old Testament, Moses is the chosen deliverer, uh, though younger than his brother Aaron. David was crowned king of Israel, though he was the youngest of his brothers. David was succeeded by Solomon, uh, though Adonijah was older. And we see the same theme here in the story of Jacob and Esau. So that's just you know, an interesting theme that plays out all throughout uh, the Old Testament. Before we get into the story of uh, Jacob and Esau and their contentions, um, we first point out Genesis chapter 26, because we're going to look in Genesis 25 and Genesis 27. But Genesis 26 is a story that's kind of put right in the middle of the story of Jacob and Esau, and this has to do with Isaac. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah are driven uh, because of a famine uh, to the land of Gerar. Uh, he goes to meet with the Philistine king Abimelech. Now, if you remember last week, Abraham and Sarah went to Gerar to meet with a king Abimelech as well. Uh, there, Abraham lies about his relationship with Sarah, denying that Sarah was his wife. And what we see here, we see another famine in the land. We see Isaac and Rebekah go down to Gerar. He goes to meet with the Philistine king Abimelech uh, to get help. But when he arrives, he's afraid that the Philistines will kill him and take his wife. So he tells Abimelech that Rachel or that Rebekah really is his sister. Again, sound familiar. Abraham did something similar in his day twice actually. So we kind of see this theme repeated from father to, to son. Uh, but that's not the only connection to Abraham that the writer makes. While in Gerar, God tells Isaac not to follow Abraham's steps to Egypt, but to stay put. 
Gerar is within Israel's future borders. God uses this opportunity to reiterate the promise made originally to Abraham that he will have a land and children. Now that Abraham is dead, the promise is transferred to Abraham's son. The promise did not end with Abraham, and God isn't finished with his project of creating a new people. The promise is still valid for Abraham's descendants. So in this account in Genesis chapter 26, we see these two uh, major issues being played out. The issue between the similarities between uh, Isaac and Abraham, but yet this idea of the promise, this idea of the covenant. And that's what the whole thing's about. Never take the covenant out of view. When you're reading these stories, you know, a lot of times we take these stories as individual narratives, but they're all a larger part of this story of redemption that we see. So our, uh, you know, our eyes are focused on what's going on in the story. You know, one eye is, but the other eye is always kept on how is this relating to the larger story of the covenant? How is this related to God fulfilling his promises? So we saw in Abraham, in spite of all of Abraham's shortcomings, in spite of all of the obstacles that came Abraham's way, God still worked out his promise to Abraham. So similarity, we see here in the story of Isaac and Jacob, is that God is still protecting his promise. God is still working out his plan, even with flawed characters. And when we talk about flawed characters, of course, we see uh, Isaac emulating his father here with lying about his relationship for his own protection. When we get to Jacob, Jacob is going to take morality almost in a whole different way. He's, Jacob's very sketchy. Uh, he has a very sketchy way of dealing with things. Uh, it's shown in his name. Jacob is a trickster. He's a deceiver. Uh, and we find even with the questionable character that he has, of course, God ultimately works on him with his questionable character. We still, we still see God protecting the promise. We see God working out his purposes. Because what is at stake is the salvation of the world. It's not about just blessing a guy named Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and giving them lots of land. It's about salvation. It's about redemption. It's about God choosing a people to be a light to the world, to show his character. Them being a light to the world, to be a witness to him and to draw people to the goodness of their covenant God, Yahweh. And that's what is at stake. It's the witness of God to a lost world, which ultimately leads up to the promise to whom the, the promises were really given to and made through, and that is Jesus, um, to whom ultimate salvation, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, is ultimately leading to Him. So God here in chapter 26 reiterates the promise that it didn't stop at the death of Abraham, that God is faithful to continue His promise from generation to generation to generation. So the promise is transferred over to Isaac, which will be transferred over to Jacob as well. So there's that little insight there in, in Isaac's story in Genesis 26. But again, like we said, Isaac is not the main focus of the story. Jacob is. So we're going to go back to Genesis 25 and pick up what is called this sibling rivalry. The sibling rivalry is between these twins, Jacob and Esau. 
who seem to be destined for conflict at the very beginning, you know, from birth. Jacob, the secondborn, is grasping Esau's heel as they both come out of the womb. What we find out that Isaac preferred Esau and Rachel preferred Jacob. So now you've got parents picking favorites. So you've got, you know, Jacob grabbing Esau's heel on the way out, showing he's already going to, you know, there's always already going to be a sibling rivalry. And then you've got Isaac preferring Esau, and you see Rachel loving Rebecca, loving Jacob. Rachel and Rebecca, those, I, wish, I wish God had been like, choose some names that don't sound, you know, and, and look the same, because it gets confusing. Um, Rebecca preferred Jacob, um, as seen in Isaac's calling Esau alone for the blessing. When, when Jacob called, or when Isaac called um, for the blessing, he should have called both of his sons and conferred a blessing to his son. He didn't do that. He called Esau alone. Uh, to confer the blessing to. Uh, and then there's an indication in Genesis 27 where, um, where Esau is referred to as Isaac's son and Jacob is referred to as Rebekah's son. Uh, so you see this distinction there. So there's already this family drama that is taking place even at uh, the beginning of their life. Jacob would then take advantage one day of Esau's fatigue and hunger by requiring him to trade his birthright for some food. The birthright represents Esau's inheritance uh, and his rights as the firstborn, his right to receive a double share of the family property, twice as much as the other brothers. Uh, so let, let me just read a, um, well, let's, let's just read a few passages because I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at the text itself, but I do think this is important to read. Uh, so in Genesis 25, um, Beginning with verse 19, Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, uh, the Aramean of Padaram, uh, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. So these two children would ultimately become two nations, as we've mentioned. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. So there would already be division among them. And one shall be, the stronger, shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So immediately from in her womb, this word is given about the future destiny of not just the two sons, but the two nations as well. It says, When her days uh, to give birth were completed, behold, they were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. 
Therefore, his name shall be called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the first thing that we see is here, uh, we see Jacob being Jacob, being a trickster, being a deceiver, being somebody of questionable character, taking the birthright from his own brother. And then later on, what we'll see when we go into chapter 27 is we see that Jacob didn't just try to get the birthright. Now he's going to get the ultimate blessing that a father would give to his sons at the end of his life. So uh, we turn from Esau losing his birthright to losing his father's blessing. When Esau loses the blessing of his aging father, this goes beyond question of how much property he'll receive. Now the question is, who is going to be the head of the family? Who's going to be the greatest in the family? So birthright was dealt with the rights of inheritance, how much land, you'll get a double portion. Blessing here has to do with you know, your standing in the family and the standing among the future generations that will come from the family. Isaac here is old, his eyesight is poor. And it is in this condition that he summons Esau to discuss the matter of the blessing. Now again, customary is you bring all of your sons, all of your children before you, to pronounce the blessing. But Isaac doesn't do this. Isaac just brings Esau, presumably because he loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. Um, the family is divided. Uh, the mother and the father both pursuing their own interest. Uh, Isaac's interest lies in uh, giving Esau his blessing. That's what Isaac wanted. He wanted to give his son Esau the blessing. Rebecca, she wanted to make sure that this doesn't happen. Uh, so Rebecca and Jacob devise a plan to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. So what would happen is Jacob would dress up like Esau, even down to covering his arms and neck with goat skin because Esau was a very hairy man. So even dressing down to the very uh, skin, covering with goat skin, Rebecca prepares a meal exactly as Isaac likes it. They come into Isaac's presence. And Isaac asks, who is this? Because he's old and he can't see good. And Jacob answers, he lies and says, I am Esau, your firstborn. And at first we find Isaac is a little skeptical about this, but yet he reaches out, he smells the clothes, he feels them, and all doubts are gone. Jacob lies to his father to secure the blessing of the firstborn. So Isaac means to bless Esau, but after deception, Isaac ends up blessing Jacob uh, to give the family blessing to and thus it can't be changed, and that's how it is. Uh, when Esau comes in almost immediately, he is outraged over what is happening, and he determines to kill Jacob. He determines to kill his brother. Uh, so Rebekah sends Jacob away uh, to her brother Laban in Haran uh, until Esau cools off uh, and to go and to find him a wife there. And uh, he's instructed to not marry a Canaanite woman, uh, but to marry one of Laman's daughters to keep it in the family. Again, 
about just like what happens with Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac. He was not to intermarry with any of the other nations, but he was to find someone that would carry on in the family to carry on the, uh, the covenant promises. Um, so he goes on to marry one of Laban's, uh, Laban's daughters. Uh, so we have this natural sibling rivalry, uh, which is going to come back up later when Jacob and Esau are going to meet again. But now we've got this large interlude between the, the meeting of the, the brothers to uh, talk about several instances. Most importantly, what happens when Jacob goes to find a wife, when he goes to Laban's house to uh, marry one of Laban's daughters, and things go extremely uh, off the rails there as well. Uh, but before that, we have God coming to visit Jacob. When we come to Genesis chapter 28, God visits Jacob, um, fleeing his brother's wrath. He falls asleep at a place that will soon get the name of Bethel, which means uh, the house of God. Bethel is a place that uh, becomes very famous in Israel. Uh, so we have the, the beginnings of what that place means here in Genesis. Uh, here, Jacob lays down his head on a stone to go to sleep, and he dreams of a ladder that is going up into the sky. Uh, and angels are going up and down on the ladder, and standing on top of the ladder is God. Now, it's interesting God doesn't reprimand Jacob for being a liar and a deceiver, uh, but assures him that he would inherit the promises made to Abraham of land and descendants and being a blessing to the nations. Uh, so again, it almost seems like Jacob is getting away with some things here, but yet the focus again for God is on protecting the promise. The focus is on protecting this covenant. So uh, he assures Jacob, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. So even though he's on his way out of the land, fleeing from his brother, God promises that he's going to bring him back. Um, and the latter story serves here as uh, two purposes. First, to emphasize that God has chosen Jacob to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, again, over Esau. And the second purpose is to explain how the prominent city of Bethel uh, came to be and how it got its name, the house of God. Well, then on his journey, he finally gets to Laban's up in Haran. And in chapter 29, Jacob continues his journey and meets his future wife, Rachel. Finally, Rachel's on the scene now. You scratch through those other Rachels there. Um, that's what I give her working late at night. Uh, his wife, future wife Rachel as well, uh, by a well, uh, which is similar to how what we see in, when Abraham's sending his servant out and where Rebecca is found. Uh, she is Laban's youngest daughter uh, of two. Jacob is smitten with passion and Laban promises to let him marry her, which is suspect in itself because, again, in those days, that didn't normally happen. Uh, but Jacob here, preferring the, the younger over the elder as well. But usually you would marry your daughters off by oldest first. But yet here, um, he's agreed to let Jacob marry Rachel. However, in return, Jacob has to stay for Laban and work for seven years. Um, his delight is somewhat diminished when at the consummation of their marriage, unknowingly, 
it is not Rachel that he's consuming the marriage with, or consummating the marriage with, but the, so to say, less attractive sister, Leah. And Jacob wakes up in the morning, and what do you know? He has been tricked. So, Jacob, that should be Jacob there as well. I messed all this up. Jacob, the trickster, got tricked. Jacob, the trickster, got tricked. Uh, so he got a little bit of a taste of his own medicine there. So it's amazing how you have Isaac under the dimness of his eyes because of age, you know, chooses or blesses a different son, and now you've got Jacob under what is the darkness of night and her being probably veiled and hidden, now consummates a marriage with Leah instead of Rachel. So the trickster got tricked. Now Jacob is stuck with Leah. Uh, and Laban offers him another deal. Jacob can work for another seven years and get Rachel too. So Laban's kind of a trickster himself. You know, he's getting labor off of tricking Jacob. Uh, but yet he loves Rachel, so he decides and promises to work for another uh, seven years. Um, soon the story would focus on another sibling rivalry. Now we have Rachel and Leah, and Jacob, being the husband, is going to father children because there has to be a, an offspring. But the sibling rivalry happens here between Rachel and Leah. Of which sister can have more children for Jacob? Leah, who is the older but less beautiful one, is quite fertile, while Rachel is barren. Uh, so we see barrenness in Sarah. We see uh, temporary barrenness in Rebecca. And now we see barrenness here as well in Rachel. So Jacob winds up uh, begetting seven children by Leah, six boys and one girl. Then Rachel is finally able to have a son of her own, Joseph, who will become the central figure next week when we come together. Uh, later, uh, later on, she will die giving birth to a second son, Benjamin. And then in the midst of this, Jacob has four more sons by two slave women, uh, one from Rachel and one from Leah, because Rachel at first can't have children. She says, well, here is a servant have children with my servant. That echoes back to Hagar. So Jacob has two children by the servant of Rachel. And then when Leah has had enough children and the well seems to run dry, so to speak, she says, why don't you take my servant? And he has two children by Leah's servant as well. So you've got six sons by Leah You've got what will be two sons by Rachel, and then four sons, two from each of Bilhah and Zilpah. Um, so you can see on the next page, um, the first three words, what a mess. <laughs> what a mess uh, we have ourselves into. But somehow this mess is going to become the nation that God blesses and calls for his own people. Uh, from the beginning, Jacob's story, with all its shady characters and, um, you know, shady character coming from Jacob, plays like a reality show. 
And at the end of it all, we have 12 sons. So after through all of that, through all of the barrenness, through all of the tricking, through all of the deception, through all of the different wives, we have 12 sons that's going to become Israel. You know, I mean, isn't that a story to sit down and tell your great-great-grandchildren one day? Hey, let me, let me tell you about our family. Um, the nation of Israel is born out of family dysfunction, uh, which will be with them throughout their existence. Then there's this whole story uh, about between Laban and Jacob as well. Of course, you have these wives, you have these sons, you have Jacob working for Laban, uh, and we're not going to get into the details of that. Uh, you can you can read that in chapter uh, 28 or 29. We're we're down here in 30 now. Um, after much dispute, contention, and more trickery, Jacob flees Laban. Uh, Laban is angry with Jacob. He chases Jacob to the hill country of Gilead, uh, where eventually, you know, and it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, there was, there's idols in the house of Laban, and, you know, Rachel takes the idols, and, you know, Laban's chasing them because of the idols he wants back, and it's, it's, it's it's a crazy story. I mean, there's a lot of dysfunction and, you know, really stuff you shake your head at and it's like, what is going on here? Um, but anyway, even through all of that, you know, you've got goats given to some and I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. But anyway, Jacob flees Laban. Laban chases after Jacob to Gilead. Um, they finally make a covenant together there um, and they split, they split rather peacefully. Uh, Laban returns home to the north. Uh, Jacob continues his travels down south. Um, Jacob headed south. Now here's the problem with Jacob heading south. He's headed back to the territory of Esau, uh, his brother that he tricked many, many years ago. Uh, And eventually he hears that Esau was coming with 400 men, so that's not looking good for Jacob, uh, who's just carrying his family with him. Uh, but Jacob heads south toward Esau. The last time we saw Esau, he, was, he, he wanted to kill Jacob. Um, Jacob sets aside large parts of his flocks and herds to give his gi- gifts to Esau and sends them on ahead. So he's hoping to you know, try to make amends, fearing for his life, uh, by sending you know, goodwill gifts ahead of him uh, to Esau. Uh, he crosses his wives and children over to the land of Jabok, which seems to represent the border of Esau's territory. Uh, And then he's left alone on the northern bank of the river. While he's left alone again, he has another encounter, this time with a shadowy figure in the dark, um, a man. And Jacob finds himself wrestling all night with this man. At dawn, the man wants to leave, but Jacob refuses to go unless the man gives him a blessing. So he does. He blesses Jacob. He changes his name from Jacob, which means trickster, deceiver, to Israel, which which means God strives or one who strives with God because they fought and they strove together all night. Um which is upon the narrator explains for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So the man blesses Jacob and leaves. Uh, so who is the man? Uh, is the man a personification of Jacob's fears? Was Jacob uh, wrestling with himself all night? Was the man representing of what could be a future struggle with Esau? 
But the text views it very differently. The text views this man as God himself. For as Jacob puts it, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The brief episode is dark and mysterious, yet clearly of great significance, uh, because it explains the origin of the name Israel. So it's giving identity to this nation that would come forth. It also leaves us with a picture of Jacob as a changed man. Uh, Jacob is different after this encounter. His character is different after this encounter. Um, Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel, but Jacob would walk with a limp after this because the God, the man, touched him in his hip and took his hip out of joint. So it's amazing, you know, and that's, that's mysterious. You have Jacob and this man wrestling all night long. The man cannot overcome Jacob, but yet when he, when he gets ready to leave, he just touches him on the hip and dislocates his hip. And it's like, okay, this man was just playing with Jacob uh, the whole time. But it's a picture of this striving. It's a picture of him striving and wrestling with God. Um, and at the end of the day, receiving God's blessings. And that's going to come out in our conclusion today. Um, he still walks with a limp to remind him of the encounter, but more important, his character is changed. Then when we meet Esau, Esau too has been transformed. He runs forward to greet Jacob, hugging him and kissing him. Um, the hatred of the past has been forgotten. Jacob himself acknowledges his guilt and he urges Esau, or as he urges Esau to accept all the animals he is presenting to him because they are, quote, my blessing that is brought to you. In other words, he is giving back the blessing he had illicitly obtained in chapter 27. Such is the spirit of reconciliation that Esau presses Jacob to join him back in Seir, but Jacob sees, this, uh, sees it as his duty to return to Canaan, to the land promised to him and his descendants. So we have a rather shocking story here of things working out and people getting along uh, in this story here. But we see this reconciliation here. Uh, we see Jacob coming in um, almost repentance uh, of what he's done, if you will, bringing a blessing back to Esau. Uh, Esau receiving uh, the blessing because Jacob's basically making him receive everything he's brought to him. Uh, but things seem to be okay there. Um, in chapter 35, Jacob travels to Bethel where he builds an altar to God and God blesses him. And again, the command comes to Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. That's repeated to Jacob. And also, the promise is repeated that Canaan would be their perpetual home. God's dual promise of people and land is still a go. The promise is still secure. The story ends with a list of Israel's 12 sons and an account of the deaths of Rachel. Rachel dies again, uh, bearing her second child, Benjamin. And then Isaac dies as well. Um, and the last sentence ends on a hopeful note of reconciliation, which says in verse 29, Isaac is buried by both sons, Israel and Esau. Um, so that's a nice picture to see, to see the two sons burying their father there. That's, that's a warm and feel-good moment that you don't get too often in, in these stories. Um, 
One thing that, that, that we didn't cover here, but, uh, you know, in chapter 34, you have Jacob's daughter. Uh, Dinah is uh, raped, essentially, uh, by Shechem. Uh, then you have a bunch of stuff going on there, and uh, a bunch of the, she- the people from uh, Shechemites die. Um, so that's another story that I didn't like the flow of it, so I cut that part out. But anyway. Uh, in chapter 36, uh, you have the genealogy of Esau. Uh, at the end of the story, um, or at the end of Abraham's life, we had a brief listing of the descendants of Ishmael, so a still acknowledgment of Ishmael. And here we have uh, another acknowledgment of the genealogy of Esau that ultimately would become Edom. And this is also to act as a reminder of the close connection between the kingdoms of uh, Israel and Edom. So if you look on your back page here, we have a map. Maps are always helpful. This shows the journeyings of uh, Jacob. You see the red line, the, the solid red line over on the left-hand side where Jacob flees from Esau's threats after he deceives and lies and tricks uh, Isaac. And he goes all the way up to Haran, um, Jacob spends 20 years in Haran working uh, for Laban, and then he flees Haran and flees Laban and goes all the way down um, to uh, the mountains of Gilead where Laban chases him. Uh, So Laban chased him a long ways. Laban chased him a long way down to Gilead, and then um, it's finally where Jacob and Esau meet and then finally settles there. So there's a nice little map that you can kind of trace the journeyings there of Jacob. But ultimately, what do we learn? And this is the second page that, or the last page that I came in and gave. Ultimately, what do we learn from Jacob and the large story of redemption, the large story of the promise, and the large story of Israel? Um, And what we kind of see in these characters is that who they are and what they go through almost relates and mirrors Israel's history as a whole. One thing that is abundantly clear between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that they were not perfect people. They made questionable decisions. They made bad choices. They looked after their own interests uh, from time to time, especially with Jacob being flat out lying and deceiving uh, his own father. Uh, So from beginning to end, the whole story of Israel Really, a story of completely virtuous people and completely faithful people to God. But yet, what you see is God is still faithful to His promises. And that's what the story is about. That's what I want us to see in this journey, even throughout all the Old Testament. It's not really about the faithfulness of an Abraham. You know, I know we like to put Abraham up, and I mean, even the New Testament uses that. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, and, and a lot of times we like to look at these characters and, and we teach some of these Bible stories in a way that we're like, we'll just model the good parts of them and don't do the, the bad parts of them, and that's how you live. But in the end, the story isn't really even about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not about their faithfulness and even trying to emulate their faithfulness. Ultimately, the story is about coming to recognize the faithfulness of God in our lives. 
in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our failures. Yes, we should strive to be faithful to what God has called us to do. That's what He would have us to do. But at the end of the day, you and I are not going to stand on our faithfulness. We're going to stand not on our faithfulness to our word, but on God's faithfulness to His word to us. And us being willing yet human recipients of that, that still fall short at times, that still mess up at times, that still let our flesh and humanity get the best of us. But at the end of the day, it's God's faithfulness to His Word that's the point of the story. God is the hero of all of these stories. And um, we see that played all throughout uh, the history. God doesn't overlook their bad deeds at times. Sometimes their own deeds bring judgment into their lives. Sometimes, as in the story of the exile, God ends up judging His people. But yet even in that, God disciplines His people, but still presses on with His plan. Um, his unwavering faithfulness is His covenant love or His hesed. That's His faithfulness to God's Hebrew word. And the very name of God's people and how that came to be <coughs> is an indication of their journey. Their name came to be because Jacob struggled with God all night. And he was touched by God and he walked with a limp to remind him of his struggling and striving with God all night long. But yet at the end of the day, God brought out his promise to them. So Israel... The struggle will take on many dimensions. Uh, Israel is not one that always sees themselves as triumphant on top of the food chain, but yet as a wandering, wandering people who struggle with their faith and their relationship with God. Like their fathers of old, the Israelites are defined by their struggle with God. And like Jacob, they intend to hold on to God so that they can be blessed. And that was the thing. We're just going gonna to hold on to God, not let you go until we are blessed. Israel is determined to stay in their struggle with God for as long as it takes, even in exile, when they're exiled. However utterly discouraging it may be, it will not dissuade them. They're holding on to God, realizing that God is ultimately holding on to them because there's bigger things at stake, as we see in the whole story. So, you know, we learn about Jacob throughout his struggles, throughout his humanity, throughout his character. God is still faithful. Uh, to his people.